Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Oh, good day. Good day to you. There are no boring days anymore. Uh, and it seems as though this might be an especially exciting one. And I was saying to producer Betsy Kaplan just a few minutes ago, we couldn't be in a better position right now. I mean, not as a democracy. <laughs> as a democracy, we're completely screwed. I mean, we, our show, couldn't be in a better position because we just have just the right guests uh, for just this moment uh, and in a way that will cross over very neatly. So uh, in, I'll tell you, then, in the second segment of the show today, we are going to have Leon Nafak. He has put together this remarkable and very addictive, I am here to tell you, podcast uh, called Slow Burn, which is about Watergate. And really, every day that passes... As the Trump story gets more complicated and darker and more full of questions about who can hold a president accountable and when a society will make the decision uh, to maybe turn away from its political leanings and, and towards uh, the, the health of government, uh, comparisons to Watergate become more and more germane. So, And when you listen to the podcast, too, you just think, oh, yeah, uh, yeah that's this, right? I'd forgotten. So anyway, he's coming up. Uh, but to set the stage, uh, uh, if, if there's anything even better than that, we've got Emily Bazelon, a lecturer at Yale Law School, staff writer for The New York Times, and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Discovering the Power of Character and Empathy. She's a, a co-host on Slate's podcast, Political Gabfest, another podcast I'm pretty addicted to. And, and in fact, they, in their most recent episode, were talking about exactly what we're going to talk about now. Uh, although what we're going to talk about now just got more complicated, too. So we should say that Deputy Director uh, Andrew McCabe uh, of the FBI has uh, either stepped down or been forced, according to one report, to step down. I will miss his glasses. They're really great FBI guy glasses. I'll probably miss our democracy even more, but um, I mean, when this whole thing plays out. Uh, But uh, there's a lot more going on than that. So, Emily, first of all, uh, you're joining us from the studios of Yale. Welcome aboard. Uh, I am indeed. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited that you're about to have Leon on because I am also a big fan of Slowburn. Yeah, Slowburn is great. And there's actually a lecturer in the poli sci department at Yale who's assigned the entire podcast to his class. That's excellent. Uh, it's me, actually. Um, so, um, <laughs> the um, so so I guess we have to begin with before this latest Monday morning flurry of stuff. We we had a thing going on on the sort of on the political right that that I think could be divided. That you guys tried on your podcast to kind of quantify and qualify uh, at the end of last week. It sort of divides into two parts, right? One of them is this part that has words like secret society uh, and maybe deep state uh, and and missing texts, although they are no longer mix, missing attached to that. And that involves two people who were attached to Bob Mueller's team, but in fact haven't been attached to Bob Mueller's team for a long, long time, right? That's right. And, you know, I think that one way to think about all of this flurry, which, you know, is centered on this secret memo that Devin Nunes in the House is uh, started this release the memo campaign about, all of this is 
a giant distraction from Mueller's investigation and an attempt to derail it and also to muddy the water so that if Mueller does come up with evidence of crimes or misdeeds by President Trump and people around him, there will be kind of already a built-in resistance to believing all of that. And so if you think about that possible lens for viewing this other story, which is casting aspersions about the FBI, about the Justice Department, about everything connected to the Russia investigation, it gets easier to understand what the point is. Now, I should also say, you know, like any um, set of accusations, we don't know what's behind it all, but it looks motivated by this quite sharp um, political and and partisan motivation. um, And that's part of understanding it. Right. So uh, maybe one way to think about this is to me, the 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 Nunes memo, the Nunes memo is kind of the second part of it. The first part of it, and we can probably fold McCabe into it, is this notion that's being floated by conservative media and by some conservative members of Congress, that there's just a political leaning to this whole investigation, that these two people who were texting back and forth, who were having an extramarital affair and therefore using their work phones to chit chat a lot more than they use their private phones. We're basically expressing depression. You know, OMG, I'm so depressed uh, about who was president, uh, and and that that got kind of ginned up into a conversation about whether some of the people participating in an investigation of the Trump administration. Uh, even though they're on the law enforcement side, have political leanings. Maybe you can add McCabe to that. His wife, Jill, had run for statewide office in Virginia and received money to from people connected to the Clintons. Right. So, Emily, that's part of this. The, the, there's an argument being made that there's it's not just pure enforcement of the law. There's something else. That's right. And then there are at least two parts to this. One is an attempt to discredit the FBI, right, and mm-hmm. to argue that these kinds of political admissions in the text, particularly between you're talking about FBI agent Pete Strzok and um, Lisa Page, who was a lawyer at the Justice Department, these kinds of admissions would have infected their work. So that's one question. Like, we don't expect every FBI agent to ha- and Justice Department lawyer not to vote, not to have any political opinions. And the, But there's an assumption being made here that if they were expressing those opinions to each other, that must have influenced the investigation in a way that was biased against Trump, right? That's like an important part of this. And then moving on to McCabe, a further effort to discredit him. And then you start taking it high up into the FBI. And the timeline gets a little strange here because, you know, some the the communications between Page and Strzok date from before the election, mm-hmm. a time in which the FBI and the Justice Department, if anything, when you look at their actions, um, disclosed an investigation against Hillary Clinton, did not disclose an investigation into collusion potentially between the Trump campaign and Russia, right? So you have the FBI and the Justice Department actually taking actions that um, were not biased against Trump. Um, so I feel like that's sort of some getting lost in the um, mm-hmm. Republican conspiracy narrative that we're hearing. 
Right. And and right. In other words, uh, at that point, if they were engaged in some kind of conspiracy to derail Donald Trump, they disguised it by appearing to do exactly the opposite to uh, to upend the campaign uh, of, of Hillary Clinton. I guess. And the other thing that we can say, and this is such an unusual thing. I mean, this is one of these things that I, I don't think really does have a parallel in Watergate or anything else. But this notion of discrediting the FBI, it's not particularly subtle and it's coming from the very top. So we have the president of the United States tweeting in December that the FBI's, quote, reputation is in tatters, worst in history, exclamation point, you know, which is a strange thing for a chief executive to say about part of his own administration, that its reputation is in tatters. But Emily, that's not a, a, a subtle thing to be saying. No, the opposite. And of course, there's an irony here, which is that often it's people on the left who are more suspicious about the law enforcement powers of the FBI. We have a history of J. Edgar Hoover when he was the head of it, abusing his powers. Um, And yet here we have this Republican conservative um, president who is discrediting his own agency. Usually we think of presidents doing that at their own peril, um, and that does take us back to Nixon. But, you know, Trump breaks a lot of rules and erodes a lot of norms. And so we're seeing that again here. So now the second part of this, if this thing is a uh, enough of a thing to have parts, uh, is this secret And when we say secret uh, memo that Devin Nunes uh, is in possession of, increasingly I'm reminded of the words of Inigo Montoya. Oh, we don't have it. Never mind. He says you keep using that word. Uh, I don't think it means what you think it means. I mean, they they keep calling it a secret memo, but I mean, everybody seems to know what's in the memo by this point. And Emily, one thing we know is that uh, as of this morning anyway, the New York Times is saying that, that this memo in particular targets Rob, uh, Rod Rosenstein, so who's obviously Deputy Attorney General. So now you've got maybe even a pattern of like, like maybe beginning to pick off certain people. I mean, if McCabe is gone today uh, and, and Rosenstein is part of what this memo is all about. Um, right. I mean, one thing for as I try to keep my eye on the ball here, it seems like there are a few people who are essential to, to rule of law, really, right? To the continuing of this investigation and it ending wherever it ends. And now I'm talking about Mueller's investigation Mm. um, into Russian meddling in the 2016 campaign. And so if that is the main event, which I believe it should be, then Robert Mueller is essential and Rod Rosenstein is essential because he is the top official at the Justice Department who's overseeing that investigation in the wake of um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision last year to recuse himself. And you can see why Trump and his allies would go after Rosenstein. And this secret but not so secret memo, which, you know, the the Justice Department says it would be extraordinarily reckless to release because it's based on classified information. And also it sounds like it's been cherry picked, um, is looks like it's about to, I don't know if accuse is the right word because you have to buy into the idea that there is wrongdoing here. But The memo is partly about what's called a FISA application, um, an application of the FBI to to conduct surveillance over Carter Page, 
who, of course, is one of the um, former Trump aides caught up in all of this. And so the news this morning was that Rosenstein had signed off on that application to the FISA court for surveillance as if there was something wrong with doing that. Um, and, and that's going to be, I think, used as pressure on Rosenstein, I suppose. And this starts to get really pretty dangerous from the point of view of of rule of law and kind of the test that the country passed during Watergate and that we're um, experiencing again. Right. So, you know, it. I mean, in a way that does segue to our eventual conversation with Leon, you know, you have this moment where you're starting to see lines that appear to connect and you wonder what whether you're connecting them simply because it fits your own notion of what the narrative actually is or because you're paranoid or because they really do connect. So, so, I mean, really within, what, just a, a few days of learning also from The New York Times uh, that last summer, uh, President Trump ordered the firing uh, uh, of, of Robert Mueller. And I, I'm really careful about these verbs because I keep saying, keep hearing people spin it as he was thinking about doing it. No, he wasn't thinking about do it, doing it. He ordered it done and Donald McGahn said he wouldn't do it. He quit rather than do it. So you've got that. And then you've got Rosenstein, who I assume is kind of the Elliot Richardson in this story. In other words, it, I assume, uh, Emily, and you would know this far better than I, that if it ever came to that, he'd be asking Rosenstein to do the firing. Yes, it does seem like, legally speaking, that's the way the chain of command works. There's some question about whether Trump could himself fire Mueller, but it certainly wouldn't be standing operating procedure. And so Rosenstein has been standing there, um, you know, as and has said publicly to Congress that he would not fire Mueller without good cause to do so and that he doesn't see any such cause. And, you know, these are the two officials who are every day they go to work showing that nobody in the United States is above the rule of law. And that is a basic precept of democracy. And whatever Mueller is finding out, we need to know the answer and he needs to be able to finish doing his work. So one of the things that I thought the, the three of you discussed very effectively last week is, I mean, there there are these things that are being done, the impugning of the overall integrity of the other effort, whether it's the impugning of the FBI or the trying to discredit Mueller or trying to discredit uh, Rosenstein. We should say that. I don't know if we said it, but one of the things that's being at least breeded about is the idea that uh, in the Nunes memo that Rosenstein's relying to a certain degree on material that was derived from the Christopher Steele investigation uh, to get the FISA warrant on Carter Page. This is all like some Baroque novel, but... Um, yeah, seriously, the dossier. We should yeah, give the it dossier. its Baroque novel name. <laughs> right, the proper name, the <laughs> dossier. So so there's you, know, you have all of that, and, and it, it, it seems as though, you know, there's this effort just to basically play defense in a situation where that's at least the reaction of some of the Republican Party and a lot of the conservative press, although it's interesting how much of the conservative press, whether it's Brett Stevens uh, or, um, well, uh, Charlie Sykes. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people in the conservative press who are not comfortable with what's happening right now. They're the never Trumpers, though, right? right. I mean, yeah. when you go on, when you look at Fox and you look at what Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Fox and Friends folks are saying, they are on board. Um, but there's also the question of what happens when all of this is over somehow. And th- this is the thing that I think that you guys were were palpating a little bit last week. And I think it's a really interesting question, which is if you ultimately succeed in eroding people's confidence in the FBI and the Justice Department, I mean, what have you won at the end of all this or maybe what are we inheriting at the end of all this? 
Right. Well, if you're President Trump and what you care about is you and your family not being indicted and being able to walk away and say, we did nothing wrong, no money laundering, no collusion, no obstruction, then I'm not sure you really care about what damage you've done to the FBI and the medium to the long term. If you're a citizen of the United States and you think that federal law enforcement needs investigators, then this is like a serious problem. Um, and it is an amazing moment in which um, our chief executive does not seem concerned about that. You know, I guess um, one question that I have is, is, is there any way that, I guess maybe we have to wait for the Mueller report or wait for one of these committees to do something. There's no real Judge Sirica in this. There's nobody really kind of refereeing this or calling balls and strikes, right? It's sort of like there's instead, I, that's the wrong sport. There's just these two football teams going at it, throwing whatever they've got at each other. I mean, is there any way that this can be refereed either by the judicial branch of government or, or by anybody else that, that you can think of? Well, we haven't gotten to the judicial branch yet, right? I mean, there are a number of ways in which judges and the courts could become relevant. So one would be Mueller tries to indict more people. I mean, we do have the courts overseeing the indictments that he's already filed, but obviously there are other people who could be indicted. Um, so that is one way the courts factor in. Another would be that um, the Trump engineers Mueller's firing. And then the first institution that that will that will be um, at the center next is actually Congress, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is the the second branch that is should be playing a key oversight role here. And then you will have questions about legislation to protect Mueller or you know reappoint him, and then potentially you know the kind of clash and constitutional crisis that does involve the courts. My fear is that Congress, this Congress, will not be willing to play that role. And so it will be hard to get the courts involved because you have Congress rolling over and being supine. That They're the ones who, uh, in addition to um, you know, Mueller and this investigation in the executive branch, they are the ones to look to here for accountability. Right. I mean, in, in his public utterances, I mean, Mitch McConnell has kind of waved away most of this stuff. I mean, most of the concern anyway about what's happening here. And it does seem, uh, I mean, if they were able to use somehow this Nunes memo to get Rosenstein out and already having gotten McCabe out, this kind of notion of picking off some of these stand-up guys who maybe belong to a certain kind of tradition within the Justice Department, uh, getting rid of those people and maybe being able to replace them with more cooperative kind of people. That's alarming to some of us. But if it's not alarming to McConnell and to Ryan and to the people they command, um, I, I would just think, as you're suggesting, that, you know, this this year, 2018, will pass with Congress doing essentially nothing. Right. And that will be, uh, I would say, enormous disappointment. Again, not from a partisan standpoint so much as just, you know, the basic functioning of our institutions. The remedy for that, the most obvious remedy, is not necessarily the courts. It's the 2018 elections. There's the, it's the 2018 elections. And I guess I would also ask you, uh, we're talking to Emily Bazelon, by the way, whether or not you can imagine 
another kind of tipping point. So, I mean, go, go back to Watergate for a second. So we, we know that, you know, we know from Leon that, for example, Howard Baker, who kind of emerged as a Republican with a conscience in this process, but his first reaction as the committee convened was to go and meet privately with Nixon and say, you don't have to worry about this. This isn't going to be a big problem. Uh, and, and at some point, uh, Howard Baker either couldn't live with his own conscience or couldn't live with public opinion as it shifted on this. I mean, can can you imagine a scenario where absent a change in the majorities in Congress, but simply because those people will not be sworn in for another year, um, you know, uh, just because of the way the fact pattern is going or because Trump really does fire Mueller, that maybe some of these people begin to reverse themselves? I mean, I think it's possible. I certainly want to hold out the hope for it because I think it's so important institutionally. Um, I don't think it's obvious. And there are a couple of factors that I think we've touched on a little bit but are different between Watergate and now. I mean, one is the rise of conservative media, the degree to which an alternative set of facts is available um, to to, the, to Trump's base. Um, and another is um, – you know, this question again about uh, Trump's popularity, right? So one thing that's crucial about the timeline for Watergate is that it's not until Nixon's approval rating fell from the 70s or 80s among Republicans to around 55 that impeachment became a real possibility. And we have not seen that kind of drop in Trump's approval ratings among Republicans and his base. And and then that ties back into the way in which conservative media and the sort of conspiracy distraction, you know, throw all the spaghetti at the wall, Devin Nunes tactic is taking effect. You know, that, the point you make about conservative media is really one worth spending a moment on because, in fact, yes, they can keep a story like this going. They can keep it alive. They can push it. And they can build out from it, too. And they can make it a much more Baroque cathedral. Uh, and so, I mean, you've got uh, Rush Limbaugh's immediate reaction was that, yes, this is the deep state at work. And this deep state is probably the same deep state. He really said this, by the way, that provided George W. Bush with false intelligence about Iraq so that he would lead a charge into Iraq and ultimately discredit himself. Um, and, and Rush had that thing, you know, it was ready on a hair trigger, this kind of crazy connection. And, and there have been a lot of those kinds of things. And if you, you know, if you're dumb enough to be like me and write a newspaper column and then read the comments you get, you see that th there's a lot of people who see this not simply as some kind of conspiracy by a bunch of people in the FBI and the Justice Department and a few retired people from those institutions, but all of those people wrapped together with the Clintons and President Obama. It's like all one big thing that connects to lots of other stuff. And, and that, where, that, where that used to be a fringe idea, Emily, it now has a much larger constituency. That's, that is my guess. That is a concern. And I think Connected to all of this is this question of, you know, once you start, I'm about to mix metaphors, forgive me, but once you start going down these rabbit holes, you're not actually on defense anymore. You're on offense. You have your own set of charges that you're hurling and you're asking for people to, you know, take your suspicions seriously. And until, you know, the 50,000 texts reappear, the suspicion, it, you want everyone to suspect that something 
that they were like zapped away by the Justice Department, right? It's this um, idea that you're making accusations that that the media then spends a lot of time chasing after, as opposed to just defending Trump and his um, aides from the attacks of um, the of the investigation, based on what we've learned so far. All right. I think we've succeeded in making everybody's heads spin sufficiently. So uh, Emily Bazelon, lecturer at Yale Law School, staff writer for The New York Times and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy, co-host on Slate's podcast, Political Gabfest. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. All right. And thanks to our friends down in the Yale studio for getting Emily uh, on the air with us. Uh, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back and we're going to introduce you to this host of the podcast that Emily, Emily and I keep talking about. All right. Welcome back to The Scramble. Uh, we are, as usual, scrambling around on Monday, although I, I think today we really feel, felt as though we had or we have a game plan that kind of <laughs> makes some sense. And it made some sense to us even at the end of last week when I said to uh, Betsy Kaplan, the producer, I really want to tie in this Watergate thing. Uh, I, I really want to talk uh, particularly about this podcast uh, where they're walking people through the steps of Watergate. Uh, and um, that was even before some of the things <laughs> happened that happened over the weekend uh, where, I mean, I just feel with each passing day, there's a way in which we make more connections uh, to Watergate. So uh, we're going to have Leon Nafak on just a, just a second. I think we might be having a little bit of trouble making that connection right now. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming up. I guess maybe the first thing that I will tell you, though, is that um, if you get interested, which I hope you will, in what we're talking about, and I've mentioned this on at other times on other shows. I've mentioned it on The Wheelhouse. Um, this is uh, part of the Slate uh, family of podcasts. Uh, once again, it's called Slow Burn. Uh, and once you start uh, listening to it, you're going to do what I do anyway, which is to uh, eagerly anticipate the dropping of each new episode. Um, and so before we begin, before we even bring Leon uh, into the conversation, um, I want to just show you the way that it's happening now, because really, particularly over this weekend, in col columns by uh, Charles Blow uh, and Greg Sargent uh, and in conversations uh, on the air, you're really starting to hear more and more of this, uh, co this comparison. So here's Meet the Press this weekend. This is uh, Tom Brokaw talking about the story the New York Times reported. You heard Emily Bazelon and I discussing this, that last week the New York Times reported that during the summer, uh, President Trump ordered the firing uh, of Robert Mueller and uh, Donald McGahn, McGahn, who was sort of maybe the John Dean person in this particular hierarchy, uh, said no, that he would re resign rather than do this. This is how Brokaw, who's an old hand, obviously, is processing that. 
I was here for the Saturday Night Massacre, and the Nixon White House thought that that was really going to unleash their ability to deal with what was going on, and it was another nail in the, in the coffin. There ought to be a lesson in all Did of they that. really think at the time, I mean, you know, we look back and realize what a catastrophic error that was. Yeah. They really think at the time they, that was going to... They thought that was the right thing to do, that their base would support them in it, and that the president had a legal uh, grounds for doing what he did. So, uh, Leon Nafok, uh, this is all uh, not news to you anymore. Uh, although I, I've been listening to Slow Burn since it went on the air. I listened to the first episode right around the time that it dropped. Um, and the way that you were kind of presenting yourself is as a person, I'm assuming, I don't even know how old you are, but I think you're young enough so that you're kind of learning about this, not having lived through it, but, but looking back and, and sort of seeing what we all lived through during that time. That's right. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm 32, and uh, not only am I 32, I also had a pretty bare understanding of Watergate uh, going into this. Uh, it was limited pretty much to uh, all the president's men. So yeah, I had a lot to learn, and uh, I think it gave me sort of a, a, a I'd like to think a fresh perspective on on, on all the stuff that I read about and uh, talked to my uh, interview subjects about. Um, there are going to be eight episodes. I've listened to seven so far, far plus a ninth bonus episode pastiche of some of the stuff that you've reserved for Slate Plus subscribers. Um, is, is there a way in which this is that you're telling a slightly different story than you expected to, to tell? How, how did the story mutate as you got to know it better? Yeah, well, so I guess the first mutation was just uh, to my level of enthusiasm for this, because when, 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 uh, when the idea first came up, I thought, you know, really going to do a Watergate story? Like, everyone everyone already knows Watergate. Everyone knows, you know, how it ended and, and what's what's really the, the point of going over it again. And then, like, as soon as I read, you know, uh, the first book about it um, that, that I read, which was uh, Nightmare by uh, J. Anthony Lucas, and as soon as I watched a couple of documentaries, I realized there was just so much I didn't know and, and, and so much that uh, I think people my age, and even people who lived through it, uh, who, who may have forgotten a lot of these subplots and details. Um, so that was, sort of the, that was sort of the first uh, eureka moment, was, was realizing that there was a lot here to excavate um, and present to audiences that would, that would be new, even if it, you know, even if it wasn't exactly breaking news. Um, uh, yeah, and so as far as how, how, how my understanding of Watergate itself mutated, I guess I'd say that I didn't quite have an appreciation for how m- many different institutions had to uh, participate and do their part uh, for the conclusion to to arrive. I think, uh, you know, I think looking back on history, you sort of uh, impose a, a degree of inevitability to uh, things that actually occurred, and you don't necessarily uh, wonder about, you know, uh, sort of forks in the road where, where things could have gone differently. And, uh, and I've definitely become more uh, attuned to those forks in the road with the Watergate story. Yeah, I just do your first point. I have to say, so I'm a very different age from you. I was 18 years old and in college uh, when Watergate really started to heat up. So in the s- spring and summer of 73, early summer, uh, I was uh, in my freshman year in college. My freshman counselor was Gary Trudeau, who was already a successful political cartoonist uh-huh. at the time. So I had a really good seat on all this. Nonetheless, yeah. I could not successfully, and I, I kind of stayed with this, but it's a very difficult story to tell, even if you do think you know it, even if you think you live through it. Michael Shudson's terrific book on Watergate and collective memory makes that point, that the average person who thinks that he or she lived through Watergate couldn't tell the story very effectively because it's, it's a complicated story and, and one with so many moving parts that people think they know it and they don't. Yeah, one of our goals was sort of to try to put ourselves in the heads of people who, who, who lived through it and to try to 
try to tell the story without, uh, you know, a whole lot of foreshadowing, without a lot of uh, kind of, uh, without trying to, you know, limit the information we're deploying at various parts in the plot to whatever was known at the time so that we can sort of capture the sense of surprise that people had when this or that occurred, you know? So one of the big questions that you explore early on is the question of when did people in sufficient numbers, in significant numbers, begin to know and care about this. And one of the points that you make that I think people have forgotten is that that Bob Woodward and Leslie Stahl, whom you uh, interview extensively, um, had been doing some reporting on this for their respective employers, but it really wasn't getting a whole lot of traction. It was really kind of a, a niche story. And then at a certain point, Walter Cronkite, and there was just nobody who had more clout. Walter Cronkite had a kind of clout at that time as, as the CBS Evening News anchor. That Nobody has today. Nobody has his kind of gravitas or, or just, you know, um, omnipresence uh, in, in, in the media. So he decides it's an important story. He does this whole series of evening newscasts where he blows out an almost unprecedented amount of time and uses infographics to try to explain this complicated story. And, Leon, what happens at the end of all that? Uh, Nixon gets elected and uh, reelected in a landslide, <laughs> uh, the biggest landslide, I think, uh, of all time. And... Uh, yeah, it was a real. I think it was really frustrating for the for the reporters who who who, who could sense that there was something big here. You know, uh, not just uh, Woodward and Bernstein, but as you said, Leslie Stahl at CBS. Uh, there were there were reporters at Time Magazine. There were a couple of reporters at the LA Times who were working on it. Uh, you know, to them, I think it was clear that there was something. Uh, you know, this was a tip of this was a tip of an iceberg. Uh, and I think they just didn't quite have enough time, and didn't just didn't just didn't find out quite enough by the time the election happened uh, for it to make a difference. And uh, you know, there were polls that, that showed that some significant percentage of Americans hadn't even really heard of Watergate uh, when they voted in November. Um, and you know, yeah, as you say, Cronkite was sort of the the, the last chance. You know, he I, I forget exactly when 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 the, his specials aired, but I think it was like a few days before the election, and it was just a little bit too late by that point. I think. Right. So um, I think one of the things that becomes more and more clear, and this is a point that other people have made, including Michael Shudson, is that probably because of all the president's men and, and some other stuff, we tend to overstate the role of the press uh, in, in all of this. And that if we start looking for turning points, I'm persuaded that James McCord, when he reaches out to Judge Sirica, that that might be, I mean, you can't just have the press reporting stuff all the time and not have substance going on in the world of actors, players in this particular drama, right? So when McCord contacts Sirica, to me, Leon, that's one of the points where this story is about to take a pretty hard turn towards more seriousness. I totally agree. I think the, I think the McCord letter in which he uh, alerts Judge Sirica that, 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 you know, there had been perjury committed during, the, the, during McCord's trial and that there were higher-ups whose names hadn't been uttered in connection with, you know, the burglary uh, and that there had been efforts made to, you know, silence people. When, when that letter is read in court, you know, there's a, there's a hush that sort of goes over the uh, courtroom. And it's after that, I think, that, that things really start, start moving. Uh, that said, you know, M- McCord sent that letter, many think, because Sirica had, uh, was, you know, was threatening him with, a, with, I think it's like a 35-year sentence, something insane. Um, Sirica was a really tough judge. Some people say he, you know, was, his toughness bordered on uh, the unethical at times. Uh, but, you know, his, his, uh, his, Sirica's 
rage at the possibility of a cover-up was what I think prompted um, McCord to write the letter. And I think, you know, you can't discount necessarily the role of the press in, uh, you know, forming uh, Sirica's views, right? So, so all these things sort of feed on each other. And part of the challenge here has been sort of trying to separate out the cause and effect and trying to figure out, you know, how, how much, uh, what, 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 what is it that exactly moves public opinion and what creates public pressure? Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think, I think the press obviously has a huge role in, in, in uh, setting the, the public, uh, setting public opinion. Um, it just, uh, I just don't think uh, it was, it was as decisive maybe as it, as it looks in all the president's men. Right. I, I, you know, having lived very closely through coverage of the impeachment of a governor here in Connecticut, or the near impeachment of a governor and his resignation here in Connecticut, I mean, I've come to believe that it's a very synergistic um, relationship. The press can pump life into a story and keep people enthusiastic or attentive to it, but you really need these investigators, these people on the ground, many of whom, uh, among the survivors anyway, the ones still living, you, you talked to, um, those are the people who they have to create, they have to sort of dig up an awful lot of the stuff that only they can dig up. And if you take either one of them out of the equation, I think people lose the thread. Um, That's right. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, I think a bunch of the stories that, that, that Woodward and Bernstein wrote, certainly not all of them, but, but a bunch of them were, were based on, you know, investigative work that the FBI was doing in those first couple of months. Uh, you know, I think there's questions about how far maybe the FBI would have gone if things had been different, but... It remains true that you know a lot of the sort of most uh, uh, you know explosive uh, scoops that, that that were that were published in the Post were you know the result of leaks from the FBI, as we now know, with uh, with Mark Feld being being deep throat. So um, you know, uh, one of the things that Emily and I were just talking about in the first segment is you know what does create turning points? What might create enough public pressure so that people from a president's own party uh, would begin to uh, question whether or not he should stay in office or whether some pretty drastic steps have to be taken? But one of the things that you sketch out really well is how long people were willing to hang in there. Uh, I mean, past at least the revelation of the existence of the tapes and Nixon's refusal to release the tapes, you had some pretty significant holdouts. We're going to hear uh, from from your uh, podcast slow burn. We're going to hear somebody who's now a rather revered figure, uh, George H.W. Bush, but was Republican national chairman, I believe, at the time. This is how he was handling it. The chairman of the Republican National Committee at the time was George H.W. Bush. Here's Bush speaking to a gathering of Southern Republicans in Atlanta in December of 1973. The people are going to tell their members of Congress. The people are going to tell their members of the United States Senate. Let the man do the job he was elected to do. And so that was uh, pretty late into the process, Leon, right? And uh, th- right. Uh, that, that was, I think, in the fall, maybe, of 2003. Not 2003. Uh, 73. Oh, two, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I'm in 2003. Yeah, it's, uh, in the fall of 1973. So you've got... You know, you got still then. And so by that time, there really is an awful lot of snow piling up at the door. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, by that point, you, we, we already knew that the White House was, was bugged, essentially. We knew that Nixon had created uh, recordings of, of, of many conversations, possibly all conversations that he'd had in the Oval Office and elsewhere. And, you know, I think what I kind of uh, concluded was that Nixon's refusal to release uh, any of those tapes in the months following that revelation in July of 73 uh, started to bother people, including Republicans. You know, Goldwater uh, was one of the first people to sort of, uh, you know, say that 
the president really ought to, you know, put it all on the table with these tapes. Uh, and of course, Goldwater uh, later became a decisive uh, voice in, in, con- in convincing Nixon that he had to resign. Um, so, but yeah, but there were there were plenty of holdouts. I mean, I, the, the episode that's going up tomorrow uh, that covers uh, the impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives and uh, Nixon's eventual resignation uh, talks about how you know the, the, the members of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, the, the 38-member body that was uh, carrying out the impeachment inquiry, you know, there were there were liberals and you know conservatives on that on that committee who were uh, not, not, not that they were. Uh, sure how they were going to vote before anything, you know, before they heard any evidence, but they were certainly, you know, leaning in one way or the other. And I think uh, the story of the House Judiciary Committee uh, sort of shows how, uh, you know, how, how long people will, will stand by their man if, they, if, they, if, it's, if it's a matter of uh, tribal allegiances. Right. And so you know, to that point, OK, so I said before, it's a synergistic relationship between the press and the people doing the actual investigations. I think there's some other things that are required to create a moment like the one that Watergate became. I think one of them is there has to be at least somebody, maybe a few people to whom people can attach certain heroic aspirations or heroic qualities or, or even just qualities of likability and whether or not they're completely warranted or not is beside the point. So, I mean, I think one having a Sam Irvin who you spend quite a bit of time on and, and, and you know, even interview a guy who started a Sam Irvin fan club, which yeah. just, like really took off and became incredibly popular. So maybe just for people as young as you who are listening, explain who Sam Irvin is. So Sam Irvin was the was the chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee, uh, and he presided over the month-long uh, televised hearings that 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 um, I think brought forward a lot of the most uh, uh, salacious and and kind of shocking uh, revelations that that, that uh, anyone had heard up to that point. Um, you know, the hearings were a total national phenomenon. I mean, ever, people were people would were glued to their TVs watching it. Uh, you know, I interviewed a family that that uh, I'm. Uh, that I'm going to publish uh, tomorrow with, as a as a Slate Plus extra, uh, you know, as three siblings who wa- who watched the hearings together uh, and and made a scrapbook uh, that you know that they still have in which there are like little jokes written about all the all the different members, including Irvin. Um, you know, th- this was a really big part of their lives, and and, and Irvin I think became a real icon, uh, especially for people who wanted to see Nixon uh, punished for uh, for his misdeeds. He sort of was this, you know the voice of uh, Decency. I think he was a voice of uh, constitution, like uh, you know, admiration for the Constitution. He was a constitutional lawyer, uh, who, uh, or rather, or rather, he was you know, he was someone who who loved the Constitution. He carried a, a pocket Constitution in his pocket that he would um, that he would wave at witnesses during the hearings. And he had this you know accent, uh, so the Southern accent that, that that people really liked. And I think it you know, as I talk about in the episode, it obscured uh, some of his other views that that people on the on the left would. Uh, would not have uh, gone along with, you know, most importantly, that he was a, a segregationist. Yeah, pretty horrible segregationist. But but he had, as you're suggesting, a twinkle in his eye, uh, and that ultimately helped a lot. And I feel as though if we're living in some kind of parallel Watergate universe right now, I don't see the Sam Irvin. I don't see the person that people kind of love. I mean, Chuck Schumer is not uh, Sam <laughs> Irvin. It, it, it just sort of doesn't. I don't see that person. The, the other thing that you have to have, that you had to have in Watergate, and you and you have now as well, because you've you need the synergy between the press and the investigators. You 
do maybe need a charismatic prosecutor or prosecutor surrogate. And then I think you need a lot of help from the guy himself. And Nixon gave the world a lot of help. <laughs> President Trump seems to be trying to help the world impeach him every single day um, and also trying to under- undermine efforts to impeach him. But I mean, I think you'd agree, Leon, if Nixon doesn't make those tapes and doesn't talk the way he talks in those tapes, uh, he finishes out his second term. I think that's right. I think that's right. It was a total, total self-inflicted wound, and I think, uh, I think historians still debate uh, what moved him to, uh, to to install that taping system, uh, what convinced him not to destroy the tapes once they uh, once they were revealed. Um, I think I think if people hadn't so so the transcripts of, of a bunch of the conversations were released under pressure in April of '74, uh, just a few months before the resignation, and when people read those transcripts, you know, including the uh, you know all the the famous uh, expletive deleted uh, notations. They were really stunned, and they they saw a side of the president that they hadn't seen before. Unlike Trump, I think Nixon was really good at presenting himself uh, as presidential, as a you know as a very you know serious, deliberative deliberative man. Uh, whereas in private, as people learned when they read these transcripts, uh, he was sort of constantly scheming, constantly talking about not what was right, what was wrong, but how do we get away with this? How do we get away with that? How do we, you know, uh, beat this back? How do we uh, stonewall these people or get them off our backs? Um, you know, it showed it showed it showed a, a, it showed that the that the White House uh, was being run like a like a criminal uh, cr- criminal you know uh, conspiracy. It was like, that it was being run like a criminal gang, basically more so than than a, than a government. Right. I mean, it was and it was a more innocent time, too. I can tell you that the notion that the president would use a word like bastard, you know, that they, I remember when I mean, you know, now we would be thrilled if President Trump would tone it down all the way to words like bastard. Uh, but um, but the notion that a president would say something like that in the Oval Office, it shocked people. Expletive deleted became kind of a meme, kind of a trope, you know, totally. all the ways in which the, those things had to be uh, sort of squelched from the transcript because the world American couldn't couldn't even handle the idea of a president who talked like that. People were genuinely troubled and shocked by that. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that, so you have like a big, do you have a big thing coming up in Washington with Dick Cavett? Has that already happened? Or are you? Uh, no, that's on F- on February February 8th. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be uh, Dick, Dick Cavett, uh, Leslie Stahl, Evan Thomas, and uh, Susan Glasser. Uh, a panel discussion at the uh, at the Watergate Hotel, actually. Well, that'll be a lot of fun. I should tell you that at Yale, there's a political science seminar, which is uh, being assigned all the whole podcast to listen to. You're joking, uh, really? I, yeah, I teach it, so I'm not joking. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank <laughs> you. You want to come to class? It's February 27th. Anyway, um, we we got to go right now, but uh, Leon Nafak, first of all, the podcast, Slow Burn, it's terrific stuff. It's addictive. Thank you for doing it. I hope people Thank listen. You. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back, and I will kind of wrap things up uh, in my inimitable and ever-beloved fumbling way. Because we'll blow the whistle on you. Just like we did the water game. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, with special help from E. Howard Hunt and James McCord. Amanda Fish belongs to the Secret Society Duck and Cover. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lowell Weicker. On tomorrow's show, we're in New Haven to answer the question, what's it like to be a bee? And now, back to Colin. Yes, what's it like indeed? All right, so I've just got a few minutes left here. Um, I mean, we planned it that way. Um, And I just want to just say something quickly about the arts. You know, I mean, these are troubling times. 
very troubling times for a lot of the reasons that we just covered. Um, and the arts are one of the things that we turn to um, to console us or to show us, point us towards greater meaning. But the arts are very troubled right now, too. So last night, I'm not making this up, last night uh, I was having dinner. We were having dinner with a friend of ours, and our, our friend brought up, um, he, he said, uh, tell me how you're thinking about this. So this whole question of how you separate um, the art from the artist if the artist has troubling tendencies. So we're going through a lot of this right now. And so I said, well, the, ultimately you have to ask yourself, to what degree are you willing to interrogate every single piece of art and every single artist? I mean, by artist, I mean novelist, poet, dramatist, uh, painter, sculptor, composer, you know, a, a, any kind of artist. To what degree are you willing to fully inter interrogate the question of that person's moral qualities, whether that person is living or dead, right? Because it's complicated. And and ultimately, there are people that we have some remove from. I said all this at the table. I said, ultimately, there are people like Picasso. Picasso was not a nice person. He was really horrible to women. So there's somebody like that who, on the other hand, we have some remove, and maybe we can kind of make a decision about that based on just that. I, I said, to me, the other question is, is the person's work full of the problem that they represent? So, for example, with Lenny Riefenstahl or D.W. Griffith, the work that they created contains the problem of their character, their ideas, their, their off-screen, so to speak, behavior. So they're a bigger problem maybe than Picasso. But anyway, we had this very interesting conversation. And then I pick up the New York Times this morning, and there's this article about the fact that they are, first of all, uh, I think it's the National Gallery is pulling a Chuck Close re re retrospective because there are, in fact, some um, sexual harassment allegations against him. But they go into this whole question. And, and in many cases these days, when there's a, a portrait exhibit exhibited, if it's a portrait of, uh, of somebody who's problematic, if the sitter for the portrait is problematic, they'll... Um, They'll have like a little label explaining why he's problematic. And now they really are starting to look at people like Picasso. So it's happening. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so I wanted to end on a happier note than that and with somebody maybe it's sad because she just died over the weekend, but she lived a, a great life. She was a terrific singer. Her name was Marlene Verplank. She was the kind of singer who could sing a song the way it was meant to be sung. This is uh, from a Johnny Mercer album she put out a long, long time ago, which I owned on vinyl. Um, so just end with her singing this great song in a very great way. Um, and as far as I know, there's no label we have to put up next to it. Marlene was just kind of a nice person who could sing well. I do, didn't you know? I remember to a distant bell And stars that fell like rain out of the blue when my life is through And the angels ask me to recall The thrill of them all Then I shall tell them I remember you I remember too A distant bell And stars that fell Like rain out of the blue Shall 
tell them I remember.